Yates on Sunday on News Talk. Brought to you by SSE Electricity Business Energy. Proud to power businesses all over Ireland. Energy at work for you. Every week at this time we have our big profile personal interview. We talk to someone of interest about their lives, the current contemporary political and social issues in Ireland today. It's a great pleasure to welcome a man who I've known for many years. He is known quite simply as the National Fixer, the top mediator in the country. He spent 25 years as CEO of our disputes uh, resolution mechanism, uh, the LRC, now the WRC. He retired in 2016. He's also been chairman of the Sports Council and Sport Ireland. He probably has more fingers in pies than I even know about and he has a a legacy history of going through the trade union movement, being General Secretary of the ASTI. Kieran Mulvey, you're most welcome to Yates on Sunday. Good morning, Ivan. I didn't know that you're a Kulshi. You're from Roscommon. You were born and reared there. Yes, I was born and reared there. Um, uh, Roscommon town. I was born in a council estate in Roscommon Town. Uh, I'm the only member of my family who had the opportunity to go into higher education. So uh, maybe I'm of that generation in the 60s and early 70s that came up from what I would consider a very working class background. Uh, My father worked in England for considerable periods of time. My mother and father were there before and during the war. uh, Was it a political household? It wasn't very political. My father would have uh, had strong views largely uh, around, um, I would call maybe the clan of public at the time. He was a good friend of Jack McQuillan, subsequently of the late Brian Lennon Sr., who we would have supported. My mother was probably, uh, would have had strong maybe Republican views. Okay, now, so you went to college, and it wasn't long before you came something of a student union lefty. I was, yeah, I was very radical in my younger days, as I think they said, if you're not radical in your youth... You still have the beard? I still have the beard, (laughs) maybe some of the politics, I'd like to think I still have some of it left as well. Yeah, I was involved in the uh, SRC, the Student Representative Council, then I became Deputy President of USI. Uh, Pat Rabbit was President at the time, 1973-74, and, uh, of course, we at that stage were part of that student revolution generation where there was a lot of things happening internationally and nationally. And uh, well, Were you kind of like a, a trot, a Marxist? No, no, I would have been more, I think people would have described me more on the Stalinist side of things <laughs> rather than a Trotskyist. But uh, I, uh, I would have been a very strong view of democratic centralism at the time. Yes. And do they go on to be union officials then? Yeah, there, was, a ge- there was at that time uh, a career path developing, I think, where unions themselves were expanding. They were coming out of the old traditional recruiting base. And obviously, with a new Ireland that was developing a very uh, important areas of, um, let's say, vocational employments, nursing, engineers, teachers, uh, etc., professionals going in, that the union movement uh, obviously were attracting graduates at the time, particularly the Irish Transport and General Workers Union initially started, followed by, by the then uh, Federated Workers' Union of Ireland and, and, and other unions. So, uh, in a sense, that was the natural migration at the time. It was a career of choice at that time. You could go into teaching, which I did for a while, or onto trade union career, or uh, alternatively, you went into the civil service or you went into the Department of Foreign Affairs. And in, what I really want to ask you about the STI, secondary school teachers, 
they, they have been outside the fold. Yeah. Uh, you know, I know it's many years you've moved on. Mm. But what's your impression? Tell me about the ASTI. Like, because I would have thought they were middle class, secondary school, uh, Middle Ireland teachers, and yet they seem quite radical nowadays. Well, you have to recall that um, when I went into the ASTI, I was probably more radical than the rest of them in a sense. But uh, it was a time of really uh, enormous issues around pay. Uh, the ASDI had rejected at that stage a pay review body. The ASDI, the INTO and the TI joined together in a joint campaign to overturn that and was very successful. But also you have to reflect the fact that teaching at that time was moving out of the ambit and control of religious-dominated education. More principalships were coming available, less uh, religious in um, schools. Also, a lot of teachers would not be necessarily different to myself and come from a similar background. The higher education grant scheme, the scholarships that came through, the free education. That that was beginning also to create a new, um, moving, as you would say, from the middle class to a lower, perhaps, middle class, or as we call now, the squeezed middle class, as we call now. And uh, a lot of them would have been people who would have been from uh, small farming backgrounds, Kerry, Galway, Mayo, high preponderance Donegal of teachers who came through in the Jonta system. Uh, they were young, they were active, they were radical, and uh, obviously we had a very successful over that 10 or 11 years. That How I long were you with the I was 11 years with the ASDI until then. The government ah, came okay. calling. And would you for, give a comment on the, their current kind of being outside the ICT fold? Well, I don't think there's any merit in being outside the Irish Congress trade unions. To me, the Irish Congress trade unions is the national trade union representative organisation. It's a church of many families. There's differences of opinion in it church of many religions do and and people take different positions and different situations but I've always been of the view that uh, you have to be part of the national structure, you have to be in there to have your voice heard. Your voice mightn't always get acceptance but it'll be heard and it'll be listened to and your influence there is the context in which you convey your argument, the capacity and the leadership you bring to it and the analysis and uh, I don't think uh, organisations that go into isolation of situation, they create uh, an internal debate that doesn't, isn't heard externally for them and they don't hear the issues other unions have. They're not the sole people with problems. So, so is that... Because I interviewed Pat King many times. Yeah. So you're successful. Very fine. Very reasonable. Very deputy. fine. General but did secretary. leadership, kind of the elected leadership, fail insofar as I think they may have ignored Pat's advice, but the point is, whether it was the junior start reform, whether it was the supervision mm. issue, whether it was the yellow pack teachers taken on, they took such a hard line, they actually didn't achieve anything much. Well, you would have to say over the last number of years it has not uh, materialised in any great degree of success. Uh, I was through that in the 80s. I always considered pay and where teachers were on pay was be vitally important because if one didn't achieve an appropriate pay and promotion structure, you were going to lose or not attract talented people to the profession, which was necessary. I always then afterwards, I mean, to me, the issue of educational reform became secondary because it was more uh, as I saw it, a more professional issue. And some of my biggest battles were not over pay in the STI. They were over the need for reform. I had a lot of run-ins with Gemma Hussey over the nature, and Gemma and I have been friends over the years afterwards. But to me, the agenda, sometimes teachers don't perceive fully 
uh, the way society itself has moved, even though they're at the core of it in terms of teaching uh, young people, young adults, and preparing them for life and for university. In what way? In the sense that uh, I, I think... When you have vocational organizations or dedicated organizations that are single profession, their exposure to other professions, to other issues that are arising for people, isn't always uh, there for them. And uh, I, I always They're felt, in a cocoon. Well, potentially they get into a situation, I think, where the only people they listen to is themselves. And if you only listen to yourself, well, then, you know, uh, you're not learning very much afterwards. Two questions about unions. I, I detected with the whole water thing and different things that you had a group of people and unions, uh, the right to change zone, that really seemed to be having a go at SIP2 and having a go at Congress. Is there a kind of subtext to unions in Ireland of a more militant approach versus the more establishment approach? I think this was more applicable when Labour were in government, you know, that it became a, a real kind of uh, dividing line. Is that a fair analysis or not? Yeah, I think that's a reasonable analysis that, uh, if I may take the internal union situation at first, like uh, I've been part of it and I've observed it. And uh, I was a member of the Irish Transport and General Workers Union in terms of my own profession uh, as, as a, a trade unionist. But SIP2, and particularly when it amalgamated from the Transport and Federal Workers Union, became the big behemoth. And obviously, SIP2 had uh, a wider influence on matters. It was the one big union, as the badge of the Transport Union said. It came from that tradition. And in a sense, uh, what SIP2 did or what SIP2 said tends to have an enormous influence on it, and rightly so, because it represents a substantive number of, of, of 150, 180,000 people in the country. So, And it has a multiplicity, and it's a multi-layered and multi-county organization. So in a sense, it is the big, as I said, union. It also has very strong influence, obviously, in the Congress of Trade Unions, even though that is balanced by the Executive Council. Uh, Radical unions or radical people within unions always see that as the pop-off point in a sense. They're the establishment. They're the establishment. They're the people pushing the line. And that always became more intense when Labour were in government. I would have always felt a certain empathy and sympathy for the Labour Party in the sense that more was demanded of them than were ever demanded of Fianna Fáil in government or Fianna Gael Labour Coalition. There was always this... Uh, expectation. expectation that the Labour Party there were there to serve the trade so, union so it, Right now, do you detect that there is a kind of uh, power struggle going on? Well, there are arguments going within the, the trade union movement around centralised pay bargaining about uh, should we ever go back into a national pay structures? And I think the feeling at the moment is that in the private sector, no, that wouldn't be the case at the moment, that there are pay increases being achieved that couldn't perhaps be achieved within a centralised agreement. I've always been in view that the the greatest number was better in terms of bringing everybody up uh, in terms of the terms of conditions. Terms of fairness. And, yeah, and standards and living, etc., and, and the influence Congress could have brought to the national debate on taxation, on pensions, on employment rights and on Europe and issues facing them. Uh, I feel with the breakdown of that national dialogue or that structured national dialogue, that's why we have the right to water campaign. That's why we have other issues arising. That you say street, street politics, politics has, has replaced centralised bargaining. 
Well, I think it has created that vacuum, Ivan, in a sense, if you have nowhere to go to articulate the issue, and if you feel sometimes, rightly or wrongly, that government or opposition are not listening to you, well, okay, people that, revert well, to well, the standard, say, okay, well, we'll talk a, to them on the street. Let's, let's say that's a reasonable point. Let's take the flip side of that coin, that if they're so cosseted inside government buildings, you end up with benchmarking and fiscal collapse. Yes, and they, they did happen, uh, I think, to a large degree. Uh, I would say we probably wrecked it ourselves. And I mean that collectively. Who's ourselves? I think the whole between the government, between the trade union movement, between employers, that the issue around centralised agreements and the national understandings and the programmes for recovery, that we got to such a situation that I remember recalling just before it collapsed that I felt the scope had got too far. It covered was education, a great, it covered yeah, government. Well, it, it was yeah. cradle to grave. Yeah. But secondly, that when we started off with the recovery in the talks when I was in 87 and 90, we had a 10-page document. It ended up being a 125-page document that was literally blueprints for the future, and which, you know, in some cases were so ambitious that they were never going to be realized. So it lost touch. But also, I think there was always a feeling, and I came across it and Probably the person I had the biggest argument with it about it was, was John Bruton uh, when he was in opposition and not the Taoiseach. When he, he tackled, I was there as part of a delegation about all this social partnership stuff, as he, I think he called it at the time. He says, it leaves government out of it. It leaves we people in Dáil Air. It emasculates the Dáil. Yeah. Uh, what, what's our function? We're the elected representatives of the people. And we find out about all of these when it's presented to the Oireachtas. He had a point. Uh, well, he definitely had a point. Uh, my my concern was that in having that point, that at some stage that challenge would come to us and we didn't prepare for it. OK. What's your assessment of the, you know, some unions have voted against the latest uh, Pascal Donoghue offer, what is a three-year deal, the extension of the Lansdowne Road. Do you think it'll be accepted? Do you think it's fair? It'll, yeah, well, I've been party of those for the last number of years and not for this one, I would hold the view, yes, they are fair. I mean, they were done in very difficult conditions. And is it affordable? Great credit to the unions that they did it at the time. Is it affordable? I, I think it is affordable in the, the measured way it has done. I think there's three, the nurses have particular issues, the doctors, the guardy, and the teachers. I don't believe at any stage that some of those difficulties are not insurmountable. So you'd be confident they'll conclude a deal, even uh, though, like all the teachers' unions, I think, have voted no. Yeah, that, that's a unique first. And I think the issue there regarding entrant pay uh, at some stage has to be addressed. And I feel to a large degree here that uh, I would more or less be of the view that the unions should go into it and stay within the process to see how that could be addressed. The same for the Gordy. Some of these issues are around imaginative solutions that can be achieved without creating major further cost to the economy, which is precarious at the moment. OK, let me give you a rant and you can diss it. This is all fine and dandy for 400,000 public sector workers who have great job security. Many cases can't be sacked. They've defined pe benefit pensions. They have a pay premium on average, which is misleading, of maybe up to 30%. 
And then you have one and a half million private sector workers who have to actually compete to survive in their jobs. They're faced with external threats of Brexit and so on. They have no defined contribution pension scheme, two-thirds of them, let alone defined benefit. And that we actually have apartheid in this country and all the ivory tower stuff that you have been part of in terms of uh, 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 the machinery and so on and, and centralised bargaining has left them behind. God, that's, that, that, you are quite right. That's some rant, all right. Do you disagree with it? I, I, I disagree with it in part, Ivan, in the sense that the private and public sectors in Ireland, that's true universally. We're not unique in this regard. And let, let's be clear about that. Public servants, civil servants, state professions who provide services in health and education have established terms and conditions of employment pay structures that have been negotiated almost over a century now. And there is no way in God's world that those will be dismantled in a way to satisfy a private sector demand or a private sector consideration. Neither do I see it appropriate or proper that terms and conditions of employment that have been established through collective bargaining and agreed would be dismantled in a way on the thought that they then might that might improve the position in the private sector. <clears throat> there are people in the private sector and different areas of the private sector, not the vast bulk of the private sector, who have terms and conditions of employment far superior to public servants. But it's high risk. You know, you can be on big money, but suddenly, you know, artificial uh, intelligence could dismantle your whole accountancy job. Well, it might dismantle a lot of other public service jobs as well. But the point I'm making, in, in a sense, is a considerable number of private sector workers are still represented by trade unions. And over the last number of years... Diminishing? The, I understand. Well, it's diminishing because the private sector is expanding. Numerically, it's not diminishing, but it is percentage-wise because the expansion of a lot of new companies are non-union or don't take on board the issue of union recognition and representation. But over the last uh, number of years, and this has been recorded by the CIPD, the professional body, IBEC, the Industrial Relations News, that pay movements in the private sector during the recession were largely around the protection of employment and the elimination of premium, weekend, those kind of pay elements that had been additionality to pay over the years in the good times. Those are beginning to be restored. Secondly, over the period of time, over the last number of years, pay in the private sector has actually increased. It's very clear. It's well documented by appropriate and reputable bodies of between 2 and 3% per annum. Unions are negotiating, particularly you mentioned them earlier, SIP2, and others are negotiating those kind of arrangements over the next two or three years and being very responsible about them. But surely pension and retirement apartheid is self-evident. Well, pension, the pension situation is, in my opinion, absolutely different. The pension situation was beginning to collapse in terms of the funding of pensions before the recession. Uh, the global crash of 2008 led the debt blow to all of these because the pension funds had invested in all these banks. But not in, all in the public shares. sector. That's the point. Well, the public sector pensions have been reduced and you might say, well, they were too high in the first place and they needed a reduction or brought down the market. They have reduced. There's been the pension levy. There's been there's no public servant that hasn't had their pension and the new pension scheme now is an average career earning system. So considerable reforms have been made there. However, I would say in the private sector, and I've been through these, through Waterford Crystal, I've been through Aer Lingus and other places where there's been ravaged pensions. 
in terms of what has been done to their pensions and to their earnings and their expectations. The pension age is about is being increased and people don't realise that most people lose about 12, those who have been contributing to their pensions through PRSI or whatever, they're losing about 12,000 a year the more that escalates up in terms of, of payments that would have been made to them from the state, the state alone. But that is an, is where money is and where money is put and where money is invested. And the one thing we've learned, I would hope, over the last number of years, even though I doubt it in Ireland that we're still learning the lessons, that's of a highly volatile highly specialised market where people put money into special purpose vehicles, special investment vehicles, and they all turn out to be a mirage after a while. We're tight on time. Lots of ground I want to cover. Um, The National Maternity Hospital, was there a change between the final deal in terms of the ownership uh, of the site uh, and the original deal between Hollis Street and Vincent's? Yes, but there was always to be anticipated that. Uh, the report I made uh, to the minister with the support and agreement of both hospital would that there would be the necessary legal um, documents and agreements need to be put in place. They've been going through the process over the last two or three months and I'm very, very confident that the political, uh, the public concerns and the hospital's agreements that though what will emerge very shortly is an agreement regarding the running of the new National Maternity Hospital that will meet public support. But, but we've had Nicholas Kern sitting where you are and he said, look, the issue of clinical independence was never in doubt in his mind. The issue is the is the ownership. Are you talking about some sort of lease arrangement? Some sort of... Well, uh, I want liberty to go in because those negotiations are directly between the hospital and the minister. But Public uh, money. Yeah, but I think the public money will be fully protected uh, and I think the future arrangements for the ownership... Uh, of the hospital will be clarified to a degree and to an extent that the concerns expressed will be allayed. When? I I would say within, uh, certainly before the end of the summer. Okay. And and do you think that will be different to what was originally received? No. In terms of the ownership? No. In terms of the, the ownership was always going to be predicated very much on what had been arranged previously, and I had stated in the document regarding public hospitals, I think this will go a stage further in the light of the concerns. But I think an awful lot of hot air was went on around the whole uh, issue in the sense that... The hot air that moved the balloon a bit. Well, it didn't move the balloon substantially beyond where it was likely to well, move. Well, the Sisters of Charity moved. Well, I knew they were going to move. I was aware of that, but I I wasn't the person to come out and say, by the way, there's a debate going on within the Sisters of Charity that related to their position. In other words, that they were going to move, if this had never happened. If they were never happened, they were moving anyway. What probably, it it precipitated a more rapid move to that. But in, in terms of the Sisters of Charity, they were already moving that for a number of reasons and moving to a different uh, vocation in terms of what they were going to provide. And they did not see themselves in future running uh, a maternity hospital. And I think some of the most outrageous statements made about them in terms of what was happening uh, was unfair uh, and improper at the time. But look, that's past. I think we'll have a wonderful new maternity hospital. It's desperate, it's needed, and okay. it'll be state-of-the-art. Sport Ireland, uh, the Irish Amateur Boxing Association. I was a fan and friend of Billy Walsh. I didn't approve of what has happened. I think the results since vindicate the view that he was a great loss as the coach to the high-performance unit. Just tell me about the autonomy of 
uh, the IABA in terms of Bernard Dunham picking teams and your feelings about all of that and whether Sport Ireland putting up the cash should be more assertive. Well, when we were assertive, if you remember, Ivan, about the Billy Walsh thing, um, I kind of I was pulled back a little bit on it in regard to uh, what I said and everything else. But By but, whom? Well, I think at, at, at ministerial level there was a bit of concern expressed that maybe I shouldn't have said what I said and, and gave them the ultimatum I did. But very clearly I was of the view in terms of what our board had said and what our board had mandated. Is that Leo? Was he Minister for Sport at the time? Oh, no, 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 no. It was Who further. was it? Michael Ring? Michael, I think, was, was a bit concerned, but you rightly so. Michael. Oh, well, Michael, <laughs> I tell you now, uh, Michael's a very effective minister and he's uh, a very effective minister at Cabinet and he was a very effective minister for sport. So okay. I interrupted uh, anyway. No, yeah. I think there, in a sense, we had to take the stand and we had to take it again recently because we could see that the way the organisation was being run in terms of the high performance unit in particular, that it was going to lead to some form of collapse of of, of the whole ethos of what was necessary. And that was evident, obviously, when Billy left and the debacle at Rio and the discipline that was lost there. We were determined that it wouldn't happen again. Hence the recent issue. We're working very strongly with the chief executive and with the board to do that. There are t- internal issues within the IABA. You spoke which, about industrial relations. It's not about what it's about. What is the heart of this issue within the IABA? It's governance. It's transparency. Between who and who? Internally, in a sense that we, we can only have one board, one system of governance, one group of elected Is it a officers. personality clash? Well, I, I, I'd say there's personalities involved in the clash, but it, it is about power and control. And uh, we fully supported uh, the appointment of Bernard Dunn. We think he's a great appointment. We think he has a tremendous track record. And we're determined to support him because that's the only way we're going to win high-performance international meddling. But we also are concerned that there's appropriate governance and that they're accountable for the €1 million Euro we give them. In when st- will that be solved, do you think? It's on the process of being solved. We're not introducing any further sanctions. We don't need to go ahead with what we had anticipated in reviewing their expenditure in September. We're happy with the degree of progress has been made, and we hope that will continue. We're back to meddling uh, at World and European Championships, and we have to prepare our team now for the Tokyo Olympics. Olympic Council of Ireland. In hot water, in Rio, Pat Hickey resigns, uh, the ticketing situation. What do you think, because we're awaiting the Carl Moran report, what do you think are the key questions that the public want answered? Well, a fool would rush in where ancients fear to tread. I, I'm not, the Moran report is, is there, it's due for publication. Uh, the Cabinet have given a commitment that would be published, I think, probably later this month. There's a legal case still pending in uh, Rio. Uh, I'm very conscious that a lot of issues have arisen and I will await with interest. And my question was, what are the key questions do you think need to be asked? Well, I think there's probably two questions. Basically, number one, uh, what were the appropriate governance measures that are necessary now within Uh, the OCI and the OCI the new officers have taken a lot of steps in that regard Uh, that it couldn't go on the way it was going on which was a historical situation and had developed into the situation that arose in Rio Um, and secondly I think the issue here is how ticketing is managed 
who gets the tickets. So does Sport Ireland fund the OCI? Yeah, we fund... Like, you seem very passive for a guy that's funding it. No, we're... F- I, I, You're pussyfooting around. Yeah, with- yeah, Ivan, I'm pussyfooting around for the very good reason that uh, I'd be careful of taking too many stands on the internal affairs of an organisation and getting my fingers burned and being told it's none of my business. The business I'm concerned about, one, is that the monies we give to the OCI is used for the purposes, 300,000 plus, for the purposes we intend it be used. And we have audited them consistently and we're happy about that and that has passed our audit standards. Secondly, what we are concerned in Sport Ireland to do and uh, is to help and assist the new officers within the OCI to get Ireland ready for our participation in the And is Shane Ross as annoying as Michael Ring? No, no, Shane, Shane Ross, Michael Ring is a wonderful man to be. Great company. This and is Shane Ross survived so and long. And Shane Ross yes, is yes, the very Minister same. Et Look, et Shane Ross and I okay. will have a joke, we'll have a laugh, we'll talk about things, and he and I will have a strong conversation with this each other. This is why you're the ultimate fixer. But RTE's gender pay imbalance, are you going to fix that? Well, I've been asked to undertake a scoping exercise. Uh, I think the prob- the issue here is separating fact from fiction, what is the situation? I think uh, I'm engaged in that, started actually on Friday last, uh, and to make recommendations. So I think I'll wait to see what uh, comes out in the evidence I may accumulate, the information I accumulate. The well, David Davenport on this programme said that um, Brian Dobbo, Dobbo is worth all the money. Uh, presume he is. He's been paid it and uh, good luck to him. More than Sharon? I will not get into that. Right, and uh, actually your terms of reference just include staffers, it's, not contractors. It's permanent fixed term. As you know, Ivan, all the, a, lot, a considerable number of people in RT at this level have individual contracts to their individual companies. That is not an employment relationship I would be looking at. And the final question, one of the biggest national challenges is Brexit. A huge EU-British negotiation and us as the collateral damage meet in the sandwich. Any negotiation role for you there? You've worked in terms of EU with the Balkans and so on. Any input there? Any point you'd like to make? What I would say is anybody who tells you they know the outcome of Brexit is a fool. I don't know and I don't think anybody knows and I'm not putting myself as the person who knows all about these things. I don't think the British government know and I don't think the European Union know the full implications of a member country the size of the United Kingdom leaving uh, the European Union and the ramifications. And where does that logic that. lead you? It leads me to the situation that has created a very unsettled Europe where there's a lot of issues at play. And the Irish border and the Irish border with the United Kingdom might be one, but it could, it could fall in insignificance for other Europeans because we have a potential independence vote in Catalan. Italy is clearly two countries. Belgium is two countries. Poland is in revolt uh, against the European Union. Hungary has issues and Austria are on the borders. We have Bulgaria and Romania. I've been through the Balkans recently with the European Union on the accession issues. And Europe is a very unstable political entity. It's also a very unstable economic entity. And I would say that at the moment we're in we're in a negotiating situation which I think Andy Kenny has laid down very clear markers and has been very successful at the European Union and our current Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, is following those. But we need to be very conscious that if not all our issues are with the United Kingdom, Macron is an unknown quantity, but the one thing I know about Macron and the French is they have their eyes on our cooperation tax. 
We're not friendly with other governments in Europe because of Apple and other issues and the tax arrangements. So let's be careful here who our friends are and who our enemies might be. And they mightn't always be the United Kingdom, our enemies. <laughs> and our agricultural industry, our food industry, the cultural and political exchanges between us and the United Kingdom over a long period of time, good and bad. But we have a big trade relationship with Britain, as David does. We have a big tourist relationship. We have a big agricultural relationship. Sorry, I'm not sure, Karen, the point you're making. I assume we the should point, be more friendly to the Brits I think, than Leo is being at the moment. No, that, no, sorry, I'm not. No, Leo, no, I know you're not slagging Leo. Taoiseach made three, and he did point out, and it was very important that he put that argument back to them. We're not soft soapers. If you're talking about borders, you come up with the ideas. And he gave them three very workable ideas at the weekend. And he was saying to them, you know, really get off your backside and start thinking more positively about what the implications of this will do. Because we have a British government that's dysfunctional at the moment. And we have an opposition that's probably equally dysfunctional. Jeremy Corbyn has voted against. He's a Brexiteer in every sense of the word. What I'm saying... But it sounded like you were saying, when you said who our friends are, we we should be more pro-British. That's your point. I I still think the relationship with Ireland and the United Kingdom is greater, historically, trade-wise, than our relationship with other European countries. That's not to say we're not strong Europeans, and recent polls have indicated that. But don't think everything is rosy in the European camp in Brussels. There are people who attend meetings, summitry or otherwise, who think Ireland have played fast and loose with the European rules. And they're not necessarily our friends and think we've got such a bite out of Europe that we're not going to get another big bite. Kieran Mulvey, thank you for being my special guest today. Some really intriguing insights there. Yates on Sunday on News Talk. Brought to you by SSE Airtricity Business Energy. Proud to power businesses all over Ireland. Energy at work for you.